Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. All men's gains are the fruit of venturing. As a quote by Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian known for having written the book The Histories and often referred to as the father of history. I thought this quote was apt for our guest today who in a brief period of his life was a teacher, is a reader of history, and who believes life is walking through the door. Our guest today is Michael Hawker AM, non-executive director of Macquarie Group, Washington H. Sold Patterson & Co., Booper Global Board, Booper ANZ Group and Rugby World Cup Limited. He is also a board member of the Museum of Contemporary Art Australia and was previously chief executive officer and managing director of Insurance Australia Group and chairman of Australian Rugby Union. Michael represented Australia in rugby union, wearing the green and gold 25 times, as well as being vice-captain of the Wallabies, and is also a member in the general division of the Order of Australia. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, managing partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Michael takes us through his journey as an elite athlete to the challenges he faced as a leader and CEO of one of Australia's most respected companies, and to today as a board director on leading international local organisations and the complexities and disruption at play. In this high-octane and engaging discussion, Michael forces us to stand back and think through what is true leadership, particularly in a time of crisis and ambiguity. He shares a global perspective and personal insights outlining some longer-term possibilities and adjustments to our future working life and world with potentially more nationalism and protectionism. So sit back and enjoy Life is Walking Through a Door. Michael, welcome to the show. No, it's a pleasure, Greg. Coronavirus. Challenge, you know, and not a challenge we've had in our lifetime. I mean, they obviously had it in the Spanish flu in the, in the straight after the First World War, but... We haven't seen this for a long time. And as, as an ex-insurance person, this was the number one thing we were concerned about was uh, pandemics. And I think it's the number one thing that most governments have been thinking about for the last 10 years as, as probably the biggest single impact other than war, impact on the global environment. And I think SARS was an interesting thing because it, it had a small impact, but not, nothing like we've seen today. And, uh, you know, there's very few playbooks for people. There's no one around that sort of really yeah. had to deal with this. So, you know, that's why you're seeing different responses by country and that's why you're seeing different individuals having different views and there's a lot of misinformation as well. So you're dealing with a globally connect connected world and a lot of information, some of it which is useful and some of which is not. So very challenging periods of time. And I think 
you know, one of the great leadership qualities in my view is courage. It needs courage. People need to make tough calls. I think the calls will change. I think people are, I think that people are doing the right thing at the moment. They're trying to balance all sorts of conflicting challenges. One is clearly you want to, the health of the country is paramount, but clearly the impact of trying to protect the health is the impact in the economy is huge negatively. Yeah. And putting a lot of people out of work, which you also get some mental health issues and some serious issues coming from that as well. Yeah. So there is a balance, and this is going to this balance will will change, I think, over time. And clearly, people are just trying to stop the migration rate of the of the coronavirus. And we still don't know a lot about it, and we still don't have an effective viral vaccine of some sort, which people can take. And we're still short of a lot of test capability. So you know the information will change, and people have to realise that in the community. This is not, you know, everyone expects medicine now to be a you know, a perfect science. It is not a perfect science. There is a huge amount of ambiguity and you can't answer a lot of questions definitively. It's a judgment call at all times and the judgment will change over time. And to me, you know, it's communication, communication, communication. You've just got to be talking from the key people making decisions a lot, describing the challenges they're dealing with to describe some of the ambiguity to help people understand that this is not a perfect science. Because everyone's got their own view. Yeah. And and, as, uh, I was sort of wondering, Michael, as an ex-sportsman or a high-performing athlete, CEO and board director, you must be sitting back just watching how these guys are performing as leaders. Well, no, because we, we're in the middle of it as well because, you know, I sit on boards of companies and we're dealing with these things, you know, immediately. So, you know, I sit on the board of uh, aged care company with Bupa and clearly we've got challenges with uh, the, the demographic of our aged care customers. Um, we're very concerned about their own health and, and and making sure that one of their friends doesn't impact the health of others. But at the same time, people might be towards the end of their life and they depriving them of contact with loved ones is also not a great outcome either. So, you know, you're trying to balance the health thing. So we you know, what we've done which I think is quite good is, you know, we we semi interrogate a guest who might be coming in. We allow them to come in between two and five, one person per aged care customer. And we then ask them to be fully gowned, gloved and masked. And uh, we provide all that stuff for them and then show that stuff away. And we feel that's sort of a balance between we've done everything we can to try and make sure the person is not going to bring an infection into the organisation, at the same time brief an interaction with. But, you know, is that the right thing to do? Don't know. We'll know in hindsight. We've got some people who have banned any people coming into aged care facilities and locked it down. Yeah. We've got other people and the government said, you know, two people, up to two people per client of the the aged care facility yeah. per day, but what's the right number? It's it's a balance, and uh, we'll never know until hindsight, you know. Right. And, and as someone said just recently in the US, actually, the chief medicals from the US said, he said we're dealing, you know, with this ambiguity, and when we started putting these, what we're seeing is, you know, government processes on top of the community, they're saying we don't need this, we don't need this, and now they're saying you didn't do it fast enough. So it's a balance. It's going to be a balance. In hindsight, it's always going to be wrong, but we're judging, we're moving forward. People got to make decisions, and there's a lot of people sitting on the fences, throwing stones, not having to make the decisions. But people have to make decisions, and we expect we expect them to do that, and you have to get on with it. And how do they make their decisions? What's what have you learned? Well, I just think you get as much information as you can. I think it helps if you communicate the challenges you're dealing with and the information you've got, so people understand the decisions you're making are grey, they're not black and white. A lot of people think a lot of these decisions are black and white. There's perfect knowledge, the perfect information you can make the same decision. And they're balanced decisions because you're judging 
the economic impact on one side and the health of the community on the other and how do you deal with that over time? And how do you deal with the resources you have to be able to meet the requirements in the middle of that? Yeah. And how big, are the, how big are the numbers going to be? You don't know. So it's a very, very difficult situation and I think people have got to basically understand this is, this is a difficult situation, do everything they can to help and meet what people are saying is the best thing to do. And the more they can help, the better off everyone's going to be. So you started your career off on the rugby field. What were the uh, the skills you brought from rugby into your career as a business person? I think the great thing about sport, and particularly high-level sport, is it taught me you have to realise that I'm and I was passionate about the game. Mm-hmm. I always say to kids when they leave me school, you know, when they ask what should I do, I say, well, what do you think you're passionate about? And if you can map what you're passionate about with a job, then it's not really a job. It's really having some fun, you know. And uh, so I've never – I've been really lucky – in that the jobs I've done, I've really enjoyed. And I think that's really critical. So you don't feel like you're going to work. It's not a chore to get out of bed in the morning. I used to, I mean, there were days where I didn't want to go to work because of the decisions I had to make. But, but you know, in, in the round, it was, you know, I enjoy the people I work with. I enjoy the interaction. I've enjoyed what I've done. And I feel comfortable. I don't regret much. Someone once said to me just on regret. Sorry, this is yeah, a side yeah. I just think that uh, one of the things about making decisions, someone said is, Transport yourself to the age of 75 and look back at this decision and say, will you regret the decision you make? And I think that's not a bad way. Take yourself out of the moment. And uh, if you get to 75, you know, then uh, if you can look back and say, I don't have many regrets of the decisions I've made, then that's not a bad framework to think of. And it sort of takes you out of the moment and gets you to sit back and look at the, the picture objectively rather than emotionally, potentially. And I have made some bad decisions, so I, I do regret some. And by crikey, you remember them. And mm. I still rue some of them. I'm, I'll wake up in the morning and go, I wish I hadn't said that. that and this is talking 20 years ago. Yeah, right. In fact, some of the worst things I've done have been speeches of people I knew very well, you know, a 21st speech or a 50th speech. It's been bloody awful. I mean, it's, seriously. People still ask me. I have no idea why because you go, oh, crikey, I could have done a better job there. But it really hurts, you know. So I keep apologising to them. They keep making fun of me. So anyway. To me, yeah, but you've so been at the top. You've been the top level, right? So passion's one thing. Passion's one. The next yeah. thing is you've got to be dedicated. Okay, it gives you discipline. You got to do a lot of practice. Nothing comes for not doing the work, but if you're passionate about it, you don't mind doing the work. I mean, if to me, I've seen people being forced to learn the piano by their parents and become quite good pianists. But you can see they just don't like being the pianist. They're just forced to do it. Yeah. Whereas people who just love playing the piano, I only play sixteen hours a day. Because I love playing the piano. Yeah. Makes, I mean, someone who loves what they're doing is going to always outperform someone who hates what they're doing. So line yourself up, find something you're passionate about. Then do the work because nothing comes without a huge amount of practice. And how did you balance the old amateur days versus building your career? Well, I was going through you got, university. You got back a couple going of through times. university and I found that there were sort of three things in life. You play sport, went to university and socialised. I worked out I could only do two of those at one time. So I did second year three times. So I did a three-year degree in five years. But I was playing international rugby and I was touring the world. So I thought that was a reasonable compromise. And then I decided I've had enough of uni, I need to finish my degree. And so I put my head down and stopped socialising for a little while. So I had a full-time girlfriend, so she put up with it. But, yeah, so and now my, was then my wife. So anyway, it's, uh, so, so, you know, you learn those things in life, right? So life's a balance. You've got to try and work out what, what works for you, what period of time in your life. And we always aim to be a wallaby? Uh, no, that came as a real surprise. I always want to be good at what I do. So I'm very competitive, personally very competitive. Uh, so, you know, I compete when I do anything. So I won't do anything unless I'm competing. So I won't play golf unless I'm in a competition. I won't play tennis unless I'm in a competition. 
I don't care if it's a Mickey Mouse competition, but I'm not going to do something for. I need a competition. Okay. I, I drive a car competitively, and I don't like me last of the lights. You know, sort of. You know, sort of. You know, it's yeah. just who I am, and uh, I've got to tame that a little bit because, you know, with a few driving fines, you sort of back off a little bit, right? So, but anyway, and then I had a, then a Prius actually, and the Prius was great because I could compete with my fuel efficiency. So driving changed completely. So yeah. I was a very very modest driver and very fuel efficient. So it's you got to got to have a competition, right? So. That's the money. That's the nature. I just don't like losing. And, um, and was that instilled from home? Uh, maybe. Maybe my father was. Uh, my father didn't like losing. That's probably true. And my mother didn't like. It. Yeah, probably. So uh, my mother was pretty competitive too. So, so we used to play. You know, competitive tip footy in the backyard. And competitive tip footy meant you're in a hedge every once in a while. So, so the tip sort of moved to tackle. But I, you know, it was sort of competitive. What do you notice about the champs? Is it humility? Yeah, I think the the best pe- the people I've seen who are phenomenally good in anything are hugely humble. The people who aren't quite there are normally the ones that are problematic because they're chasing something and they like to big note themselves to sort of say they're not quite there, but, you know, they're really great people. I mean, Mark Hiller was one of the great rugby players of all time. Very humble individual, very humble individual. You know, but I've met... People, Colin Cowder is a great cricketer, he's a very humble person. Roger Bannis I've met as a very humble in, individual. I met Nelson Mandela, a very humble individual. So, um, you know, they're, they're just uh, nice people to talk to, happy to talk about anything, happy to talk to you. The lovely people of the world, the people are really good, they'll talk to anyone. I mean, why should I talk to anyone? I mean, I'm not going to judge anyone until I know who they are. You know, and I, that's the same with me, I'll talk to anyone. So... Uh, unless I, uh, until I find that I don't like them, you know, but I'll, I won't judge it through third party speculation. I'll judge it myself. But it comes down to confidence at a certain point, does it? Give me the ball and let me run? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It sort of comes from learning. I mean, at the end of the day, I remember my father watching me play in the rugby field and I had to tackle this guy from behind. And I thought, mate, this is, I don't want to do this. And I thought, but I can't walk off the field. My father says I haven't tackled the guy. So I tackled the guy and it worked. So I was lucky that the first tackle worked, right? And it didn't hurt. And I thought, okay, I can do this, right? So I think there's a piece of this which uh, sometimes you need to be lucky that, you know, the first things you try, take a punt, they work, willing to have another go at it. And I do think that, you know, life is walking through a door which you're not quite certain about. I want to be certain about values and I want to be certain about the people I'm working with. If they say have a punt at this, I look at it and go, well, okay, why not? You know, so uh, I remember when I was at Citibank, they said to me, you know, do you want to be international staff? And I said, what's that mean? They said, well, it means that you go to where we tell you to go. I said, what happens if I don't want to go to where you want to go? They said, we'll give you one chance. You know, it makes you a more senior person in the organisation and go up in the management ranks. So I said, okay, we'll put me down. And they said, okay, next week you're going to London. I said, well, my wife's seven months pregnant with a third child. i got three, two children under four. doesn't matter. You, you know, you either dip out or go. And I went, hmm. I said, my wife said, you might go to London. Well, not really, but... If we're going somewhere, would you happy to go to London? I said, yeah, okay, well, let's try London. So we tried London. And it was tough, but, you know, you sort of walked, walked through the door. But hugely valuable, hugely valuable from my point of view because the breadth of learning you got. What about the, uh, the hard yards, the, um, the disappointments in sport? That's Well, a lot of them. You know, I was never captain of the Australian team in rugby. And was that um, ambition? And absolutely. I was a captain of my school teams. I'm the captain of New South Wales and Sydney and Sydney University and Australian universities. But I was vice captain in my second test. But never got captain. So um, Mark Ello, I was captain of New South Wales and Sydney, and then Mark Ello became captain. And then Andrew Slack came captain. I thought I might have come captain in 1984, but I was uh, got married the first test while well, the first test was on because my wife only had two two weeks holidays. One was the first January, 
and one was in June, and June was when we were going to be in Fiji, and they make they picked a new captain, Andrew Slack, and did a great job, actually, and the captain of the uh, 84 Wallabies and fantastically well, and, you know, and went on to captain of Australia when they beat the, the All Blacks in New Zealand in 86, so did a wonderful job, probably a way better job than I would have done, but it was a disappointment because I may have got that job because of where I was at the time in New South Wales and, and uh, Sydney, so who knows? And how does Mr. Hawker captain? How does he lead? Uh, sometimes well, sometimes badly. Uh, you know, it's a learning job. It's a continuously learning job. Uh, and I think if somebody says they understand how to lead people, they've worked it all out, I think is a liar. A couple of things I'll say about leadership. There's a lot of things I can say about leadership. The two big picture things I'll say, leadership and management are completely different. What you want running a company is someone who can lead and manage. And, and the reason I say that is because leadership, in my view, is emotional. Management is intellectual. And... Leadership to me is all about how people, well, so I would say what, what defines a leader is someone who people want to follow. I think, and some people do a better job than others, and I think some of the core tenets of really great leaders, the people who, who are following them, they think of that person as they're looking after me as much as they're looking after themselves. So if there's something that goes wrong, they'll take the blame. Yeah, they're running it, so I'll take a bone, not point the figure at me. That's really critical. You see that enough? And, oh, no, you see, you know, you see a lot of great leaders. I've come across a lot of great business people, and I think, I think actually some of the people who run the biggest companies in the country are great leaders. Okay. And I think they're unfortunately criticised by the media because the media tends to pick those who are bad leaders, so everyone thinks they're all bad leaders because no one publicises any good news about big companies. Yeah. So I think great leaders care about the people they work for. I think the other thing is they normally can instill a picture of the future which people buy in. So, you know, the, the old term vision. Yep. To me, it's how do you describe where, you, where we're going? What are we doing? Why are we here in business? And that's constantly what people think about purpose today. Mm. And let me tell you a story when I was, a, you know, took over as chief executive at IAG. In the first year, we had the big bushfires in New South Wales. The New South Wales government flew in these helicranes from Canada and they're looking for corporate sponsorship and they're saying, that'd be a good idea. I wonder who's going to sponsor them. And then we suddenly thought about this thing. We're an insurance company, general insurance company. We invented fire brigades actually to put fires out because if you put the fire out, there's less damage, less lower claims, which makes the cost of insurance stay low. You can diversify more because more people can, can buy it. Yep. So the whole point of insurance is when you realise this, you realise the whole point of insurance is to reduce the risk of a potentially bad thing happening. So we then worked very hard when I was IG to get everyone thinking that point. So, you know, what we're really doing here is helping our, our customers from not incurring a, a catastrophic loss to themselves physically, to an asset, to employees, to their business. That's the whole point of insurance. And that's why it was started as a mutual obligation 400 years ago. So the purpose of us is essentially help our customers not have a catastrophic loss when you think of it and, and to give them peace of mind that in the, in the event that Something does happen, they've got to cover it. They're not, yep. they're not going to be destitute. Yep. And then there's variation there, but that's what you do. So, and then we work through what are the, the large, the four, four largest drivers of claims costs. And the first one was um, biggest cost we have is property damage through floods and fire. And one of the biggest drivers of increased floods and fire is climate change. So we became very vocal on climate change. So I brought Al Gore out to Australia. I was very, very vociferous about climate change. And we actually worked with a whole lot of energy companies and went to government, three layers of government, to say, well, can we not 
get a bipartisan agreement about some sort of carbon price so we can start to measure climate change. So what years were those, Michael? So this is 2006, 7, 8, 9. 2006, 7, 8, because I, I left in 2008. We're going along pretty well. And then uh, governments changed and when it, all, it became came not a bipartisan agreement on climate change, it became adversarial. Yeah. And I think we lost 10 years in good government policy on climate change because of that, which is very frustrating. Um, and it's a, it's a transition. You can't just stop everything and go to all renewables. You've got to have a transition. You've got to adapt. You've got to manage energy prices so there's not a catastrophic cost to the community. So you've got to you manage the economy. You got It's a transition. And if you had a, a well-managed transition, we could have got there in 30 years easily, in my view, without having a step change, cliff change, in a number of issues for different businesses. And it, that sort of long-term planning helps people run big companies. I mean, if you're going to put in a new power station, it's a 30-year, 40-year proposition. You need 30, 40-year understanding what public policy is going to be. If you have no clue what it is, you've got to make it up. So it's harder. And people have been making it up and they've been making decisions according to what they think is going on from the community behaviour around us. And you see that by changing share prices of different companies. But it's not being run essentially by the government sort of saying this is we've got a, a process where you can start to measure this through a pricing mechanism which yep. changes the nature of decision making. Because yep. you got to I used to say to all the climate change people, no good talking about it, you've got to monetize this, you've got to make this happen, you've got to try and transfer the impact back to monetary value to an NPV. So companies start to think about the monetary value of the change in climate, yep. the impact it's going to have on their business. Once you monetize it, it'll change the nature of how they invest and how to drive this. So to me, so that was that was the first thing. So, you know, we came out of that. So we, that's why we became very big on climate change. Second one was car accidents. So we then we we do a lot in help, helping car companies develop their motor cars so that the cost of insurance on motor car through smashes is cheaper. So that's why you got crash panels everywhere. We did we invented seatbelts for people so they didn't get bodily injury claims. So, you know, someone said to us you know, me one day when I was giving a speech, it said, you're the fun police, right? You're stopping. You know, you, you, we are, we're, we're, we're lowering risk, right? So yeah, we try right. to lower risk. And then the third thing was theft. Before my time, people had already set up a neighbourhood watch and things like that to try and work out, you know, how to reduce theft. And, yeah, right. and then the fourth one was workplace safety. And, you know, that's the fourth biggest claims for us. So I, I started measuring internally. I said, who knows a lot about workplace safety? And the management team, zero, you know, hopeless about it. So we actually got DuPont to come in, world experts on that. And we put everyone through DuPont training. We started to measure our long-term injury frequency rate, and we found out we had an injury frequency rate of 16 days per loss per million employees, which was, you know, 15 times higher than uh, BHP, you know, which has got, you know, tough, really tough conditions yeah. sometimes in mines. That's right. So we're hurting our people 15 times more often than BHP. I say that to people inside the, the mining companies, and they people go, man, what are you doing about this? So, but, you know, people get injured. You know, walking up downstairs in high heels, you get people caught, you know, a tiger caught in a you know, machine, you know, you know, the shredding machine, you get you know, people caught in credentials, all sorts of strange stuff. But anyway, you just got people mindful of that so they could talk to our customers about what real work health safety means and took them out on the mine sites and so they could really understand what we're trying to do and work with our customer base to actually have real ex deep expertise in this to help them improve their workplace health and safety outcomes, which again, you know, it's critical to make sure you've got a, a healthy workforce. And, you know, as an employer, how do you set up a system where you're actively harming your employees? It's just nuts. I mean, so, so it was helpful for me. So actually understanding, and this all came back from Sam Mawson who worked with me. He was brilliant because he said, what's the purpose of insurance? And who's going to sponsor these, you know, these heli cranes that come in from Canada? 
And we thought through this and that's what drove, once we got everyone lined up that all our charitable work went into that sort of, those four tenets. All our work publicly was on climate change. We spoke to all our people in the company. I'd speak to this to public gatherings of other executives and helped and change the nature of how people thought about insurance. And when we put $5.5 billion of what we did when I was running of uh, new product back in the country, fixing claims for people. So a massive driver of new business from the suppliers of white goods and carpets and all the things you put in houses, timber, and you know, there's a massive chain of stuff that happens coming out of the insurance business. So the money's churning, you know, through that. But the whole point there is to try and help people not have a catastrophic loss. So that's the whole point of why you're there. So once you understand that, then you change the frame of reference of how people talk to customers. It's how people understand what you're trying to do. It, you know, it frames how you got everything aligned from a corporate point of view in terms of what we're actually trying to do. You know, everyone here is trying to help people not have a catastrophic loss. You know, at a bushfires, we'd have people come off holidays and go down and, and set up booths at the bushfire sites, handing out $5,000 checks to people's places just being completely burnt down because you see them, they're gone. Here's five thousand dollars. Get get your get your family into hotel rooms. Get some clothes. We'll process the claim. You'll have the money in your account in a week. But here's some money straight away. Bang. And the power that has on the people in the company, the, the benefit they feel personally about being able to help, is huge. And the thanks they get from people is massive. So you get, you build this fantastic virtuous cycle, and that's what you got to do in your business. What's the purpose? You know, I, and you know, we started a group of us started a thing called Australian Business Community Network where we. Got a whole lot of companies trying to work within the community to try and make a difference. And we did that for a whole lot of reasons. But we worked on if there's any silver bullets in, in life and charity is sort of that might be able to help social change. We think it's health or education. Yep. So we picked education and nearly every company has. They've all got families, they've all got kids, school, and they've been through school, so I understand it. So and we sort of brought companies together and said, well, you know, how can each of you help in the educational sector? So we use all our employees to mentor you know, kids in underprivileged schools and give them you know, reading lessons and bring them into the workplace and show them different ways of you know, how you can work, what sort of jobs that might be available or different aspirations, change your aspirations, got goals, programs, all sorts of things. But we also said as a company, you know, a telecoms company, the logical thing for you to have is an emergency line free as a telecommunications company. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? I mean, yeah. People see as a telecoms company. Yeah. If you're going to help the community in the best way, having a free line for someone that needs help, perfect, right? So if you're a building company, building something in a school or building something in some area which is going to provide someone a home, perfect. You know, so you line yourself up. What's the community value that you can bring lined up with your business function? Yep. And that all helps in terms of what you're doing. So you might have a, you know, Bain company or something like that. You know, they could put together a portfolio of advice for schools to work with the education department or the education department, do, do a survey for them or do a whole lot of, public policy work for them. There's all sorts of things you can do to try and help the community and, and also promote your own business and get people to understand what you're trying to do and bring a proper purpose around the business. And I think everyone's talking about companies having purpose. To me, that's what it's about, understanding why people buy your product, what's the benefit you bring to the community and executing on that and lining the company up behind that. The, the difficult thing is how do you write a purpose down? And I, one of the things yeah. I, I heard once was uh, the New Zealand boat knew, that won the America's Cup their purpose was to make the boat go faster. Everyone's purpose in the organisation was make the boat go faster. The sailmaker, the accountant, skipper, navigator, make the boat go faster. Right? So if you can get a purpose like that and line it up in one line, fabulous, hard to do, really hard to understand what your real purpose is. I mean, a bank, the purpose of a bank is to transfer money from those who want to lend it to those who want to borrow it. We're a facilitator to move money between borrowers and lenders. 
an intermediary which people can trust. People can trust to put your money in. It's going to be there when you get to get out. And people can trust that you got some money and they're not going to stop it quickly. And there's a whole lot of regulation around that to make that work. But that's the whole purpose in life. So, But how did you communicate your, <laughs> your purpose then? What's the best way for the aspiring CEOs out there to get themselves? Well, I think you've got to work out. It's not, well, it's not, not an individual purpose. It's an organisational purpose. In fact, most companies, CEOs will come in and this is my purpose. But it's, it only lasts for five years because the new CEO comes in there's a new one. I mean, purpose of insurance companies hasn't changed for 400 years. Just people lose it every once in a while. So the whole idea is, chiefly not to change it, it's just to reinforce it and keep people understanding that. Because the more people understand, I mean, people don't understand insurance. They don't come through school and understand insurance. You leave school, have no clue about credit, have no clue about insurance, have no clue about how to bank, don't have tax. I mean, you know, I've got a whole lot of people now, 30 kids of mine, still going, I have to pay this bloody tax, you know. So no conversation about them at all at school. So I was involved with, you know, the, I was the first directors with Paul Clitheroe and setting up, encouraging the government to set up, you know, a finance education. I can't remember what it's called now, the thing I was on. But we set up a process where we've got a website where people come to get financial information because it's not taught in school. Should be, yeah. In my view, you should, couldn't, shouldn't leave school without having a core understanding about how to live as an adult. Got to pay tax. How do you do that? You know, some of the basic stuff. You've got a phone, you're going to borrow it on credit, you're going to have a debt. Yep. Compound debt hurts. You yep. know, compound. Absolutely. And at 2% interest rates, is not a big issue. But when they were 7 or 18% we were growing up, it's a big issue. I mean, I think, you know, you lose all your money in five years, gone, you know, so the Capital value's gone. So to me, the purpose is understanding the purpose of the company, getting your employees aligned with it, getting employees who want to work. So what purpose does and what values do yeah. is force people in and out of companies. So how do you test it? Well, that's a good question. I did um, – I had uh, – I got a, uh, another guy in who was fabulous. I said, look, I've got this – got this executive team of 11 people and I'm not worried – I'm worried that they're not all gelling properly. So we devised 16 scenarios. And we ask each person, what would you do if this scenario happened? What would your action be? And there were things, you know, like if someone broke limits in the trading room or someone, senior person, dropped their pants in public or, you know, some you know, bizarre sort of things. They wrote all their answers down and then we went through them as a group, one after the other. Nine people were exactly the same and two were completely different. And the next morning, the two completely different said, we clearly don't fit in here. We're going both resigning. They're great. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Save me paying them out. But, you know, so it was a values-based process was actually they just realized that they did not culturally fit. And so you can do this. You know, it's just basically so to me, the culture of a company is, is how people act. And it's most important how people act when they don't know they haven't had the experience before, so they've got to make a decision. A strong culture will help them make a consistent decision more often than not. So this whole question about culture, you can measure it many. I don't know how you want to measure I don't know how you measure it, actually. You've got so many different ways of measuring But the real test is when people are faced with a decision that they have no experience on, they actually answer the way you would like to them to have answered according to the, the culture of the organisation. So strong cultures will spit people out because people realise they don't work there. Yep. Weird cultures allow people to wander around doing their own, have subcultures which do their own sort of thing. But you want a, a good culture company is one that's got people behaving the same throughout the organisation. That's a good culture. you also got to make sure the culture is a culture for good. So you can have a good culture, i.e. everyone's aligned, but people sort of make that synonymous. Yep. I once made a mistake about 
that. I, and I now realise you've got to be really explicit to say, we want a good culture working for good. And I'm a great believer that uh, the general community, you know, all want to do the right thing. There's only a small minority that cause most of the problems, you know, probably at worst 2.5% of the community. Most people want to do the right thing. I think most people think everyone else wants to do the wrong thing, but that's wrong. Most people do the right thing in our, you know, from my time in banking and in, and in insurance, you just see people's behaviour. And it's just the media blows up all the bad things, so everyone thinks everyone's a bad person. I mean, crime rates per head of population have been going down for 20 years. People think they're getting worse, but they're getting going down. Okay. But the media always shows that, tells you about the bad things, so, so everyone's become a bit more protective, so they've reduced the risk, but you need to build a culture which is good, and, and you you have to drive that through what's expected and the only things that you can tell people but it's the actions you, that you drive which demonstrate that you mean what you say. Yeah, so, but in the old days, are you, are you the walk-the-floor type? Yeah, walk-the-floor the whole time. When I took over the retail bank of, of uh, West Bank, I spent the first month in a bus painted with big red W's and went around the state in New South Wales going to all the branches. And uh, I used to meet with clients of uh, – customers in the different branches right. and then I'd meet with the employees at night and the first one I went to people threw tomatoes at me saying yeah, you know <laughs> so realized we had a problem we didn't have a problem we had, we had the lowest reputation we bank at the time so good place to start but you know we we realized that people weren't listening to the front line the front line talked to our customers they had a lot of problems they weren't being fixed so I bought the six most voracious and and ones that were most um, respected by their peers, into the organisation. I said, come in head office. Tell me the six things you need changed. And I brought the middle management in and said, these are six things that our front line are telling us. Get them fixed in six weeks. I had the six, six, six. So six things, six weeks, you know, fix. You know. And we got them fixed in six weeks and got the six back in again. So what's the next six, you know? So we did that twice, you know, but suddenly we galvanised the front line. They suddenly yeah, realised right. they had a voice. They could explain what was going on. You know, I spoke to this person on the front line in Perth one day and I said, you know, what, what takes most of your time? He said, I have to get uh, the original documents down to court for a lot of these uh, work claims. And they're filed away and they go back 20 years and, you know, I have to get the original. Why can't I just get a, a, a virtual copy? I said, it's a very good idea. I said, Who, who's causing this? Is this our, our rules or government? No, government's doing this. And I said, well, it's not happening anywhere else in the, the country. So we just went to the government and said, why have you got these old rules, why haven't you gone to copies, you know, legitimate copies uh, online, causing a huge amount of work for people, no value. And in any state in Australia that's not doing it, why do you move? I said, they move. Yeah, so you can, you, you can fix things if you know what the problems are. So I, I just think that, um, you know, so you've got to walk the talk. And one of the things I really like about Macquarie being on the border, it's pretty flat. It's not centrally driven. It's driven by the business, by the business leaders and our business leaders aren't the people running the businesses, are the people running each individual business. We've got a myriad of small businesses within bigger businesses. Yeah. And they're running, building their businesses, talking to customers, so they can pivot with their customers very quickly. Whereas with a century manager, you can't pivot very quickly. And you're making central decisions without all the information because you don't know what's going on with customers directly. How have you got the information base about making decisions? You've got to be walking to talk, you've got to be closer. You've got to have feedback loops coming back from your real customers coming back into the company saying this is how they're trending and moving. And you either have all the authority allocated to the front line to the people talking to customers with accountability or you have feedback loops functionally built into the organisation which brings that information in the whole 
product production line. And, you know, it's really interesting. Um, and I'm a great believer in companies. Two things I'll say in company structures. One is you want to have each level of management provides a new value. And I, I run them a model for 10 in management. So if you've got plus one, so if you've got 10 people, you'd have one manager and nine people working for them. 100 people, you'd have 10 executives and one senior executive and, and 90, and 89 people working for them. And then a thousand, you've got you've got three levels. So you, I add one more complexity as you get bigger. So, so it's pretty flat. And each level's got a unique set of stakeholders. They've got to deal with. They've got a, a unique time frame to think about this, the strategy of their business. They've got a unique investment timetable. They have a unique. They have to provide a new a unique value different to just adding up the numbers working for them. So it's allocation allocation of capital. It's it's broadening the scope of of their company within a market somewhere or a nation somewhere or internationally or, you know, it's got to have a, you know, a, a broader scope. And they might have a, a three, five, ten-year time frame depending on how sophisticated an organisation is. So, and then you just have these, so flat levels and essentially you've got to have good feedback loops in the organisation and, and, and that works. Well, what's teamwork then? So teamwork's really interesting. I learned that teamwork's not being, you know, nice and friendly to people. Teamwork is all about trusting the person next to you and if the whole team trusts every person in the team then you have fabulous teamwork you get one plus one equals three and it's really interesting i had uh i've got two anecdotes one is i had a coach in my last year at school playing a rugby team and i used to be critical you know i'd pass the ball the person wouldn't catch i go i pass the drop the ball and the coach said no 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 you're looking at this so wrong you, you weren't the hog then yeah no, he, no i passed it because you know they're better than i was but anyway they dropped it i got really annoyed and he said, you're looking at the wrong frame of reference. Work out how to pass the ball so they can't fail to catch it. Don't abuse them for dropping the ball because you mightn't pass it very well. So, so very good point. Yeah. So if everyone works out how to pass their customer to the next one without them dropping it, probably works really well. So that's the first one. The second point, the second anecdote I had was I had 3,000 people in a big auditorium with West Bank when I was running a retail bank. I said to them, I said, put up your hand if you think you're doing a good job. And then they all put their hand up. And I said, put up your hand if you think everyone else is doing a good job. And of course, there was no one for their hands up. So everyone burst out laughing. I said, that's the problem. So the problem is you think you're all doing really good jobs. You may not be as good as you think you are because other people don't think you're as good as you are. So, so it means you probably need to do your job better. And once you do your job really well, people will respect you for that. And teamwork will increase dramatically. And uh, very interesting. And people will start to get that. And but also I said to managers, you know, managing people, people, people may not be in the right job. And your job is not just to fire them. Your job is to find the next job for them, which better suits their skill set. So you need to know the skill sets of your employees. And you need to help them find the spot that they're going to flourish. Because if we had we if we could do that for everyone in the economy, that'd be fabulous. Yeah, correct. And uh, if you do that in business, you'll find that'll pay you back manifold in the future because, you know, I've had a number of people who've become customers of mine, who've become bosses of mine, you know, who've tried to help, who who remember that. And they don't look at you as a person that fired you. They look at the person that helped you. And it's a completely different way of looking at how you manage businesses. So I think it's taking a time and, you know, it's a leader of a business. There's a difference between a leader and a manager. You know, managers in my view, intellectually, how do you manage things structurally and theory and leadership's all emotional and it's about why people trust you and why they're happy to follow you and why they're willing to follow your decisions right or wrong 
And quite frankly, you're better off making a decision which is wrong but it's well executed than a good decision which is poorly executed. So people need to follow you. you you, And how do you make those decisions, Michael? You've got to make decisions. And you've got to... We're in a space at the moment. We both took the courage to come in here today. Yeah, yeah. People are in all sorts of trouble out there. And the economy is going downhill. So how does one make decisions on limited information and at pace? Yeah, so I think you've got to make sure you've got the correct information and it's triangulated as best you can so you don't get from one person. So you get a range of experts. You get the information you've got. Uh, and the situation today, you'd be trying to consult with other parties around the world who've got the same problems. What are they doing? What are some of the solutions? Because they might have thought of a better solution you have in the short-term frame. You've got to deal with it. So be a fast copier. You want an information flow. So you want a good understanding of what you know and what you don't know. Yep. And there's a lot of things we don't know today in coronavirus. Yep. It's a balancing act. The balance is going to change. You've got to communicate to the people who are constituents, which is clearly the general public, in an effective way to understand this is not an exact science. There's a lot of information we don't have. We're dealing with limited information. We're moving as fast as we can, as effective as we can. The key things we're trying to do are try to manage the health of the general community and balance that with the supplies of what we've got to be able to do that effectively. The economy, in terms of the impact it's going to have, negative impact on the economy, which also have health issues down the track. So there's health issues immediately from the virus, there's health issues from economy uh, with people out of work. So how are we balancing all of that on a time scale to try and manage that the most effective way to, to keep the least number of deaths and the best outcome from the economy? Yeah, That's a line which will change every day according to the factual change of the economy. So that's, that's the balancing act. And the more they can communicate the balancing act, I think, then people get an understanding of the challenges they have and have some empathy for the toughness of the decisions. You've also got to say, you know, in many ways, you've got to demonstrate emotional leadership and try to help people through this challenge because it's hugely challenging for people. We need people who have got the capacity to help others to do more now than have previously. And I think, you know, I, I look at the world very simplistically. You know, I thought about this a long time about how do you sort of think about things, and, and, and it may be idealistic, but I sort of think about this, uh, that if everyone thought the world was 12 people and you live in a community of 12 people, you would have a view that everyone has some part to play, everyone has a different capability set. So the least capable would have to do something, the most capable would have to do more. So people who decide not to do anything, either very, very capable or not capable at all, sort of don't fit my mould, everyone has to do something. And people need to respect them for what they can do. And if you get in that mindset, and this is the sort of time we want people to be thinking in that sort of mindset, to sort of say, well, how do we how do we garner people to realise that they're very lucky, they've probably got a secure income for whatever reasons, as secure as anyone can think about it, or they've got natural wealth, then they should be thinking about how do I help in this time of need for a lot of people in the community because it's I think this is this is this is uncharted waters in our lifetimes. This generation, generations of lifetimes, we haven't gone through the Spanish flu. We haven't gone. Most of them haven't gone through a world war. The expectation that's exact science that everything's going to be nice and sweet and everything's going to arrive today and it just goes out the window. So people need to think, think about other people and how they can help in any productive way. And I think that's you know that's sort of the message you've got to go with this message. When you were a CEO and you had to make some pretty big calls, who did you bounce around with then? Depends on the call. So I'd bounce around. i go to look for parties who might have had previous experience dealing with the issue I was dealing with at the hand 
And so I'd look for people who'd learned lessons through bitter experience, good or bad, who've had to make similar decisions previously. And if haven't had those, well, then I go looking for the expertise to how to frame the decision, how, how to set my thinking. Because a lot of decisions are great, you know, 49, 51. So how do you think about those decisions? Really, you've got to find ways of, of, of circling the issue and having perspectives of it which come from a factual base. And look at it, sort of top down, sort of abstract yourself from the emotion of the decision and sit there and sit there and say, will I regret which way that I might make this decision in the future? And, and think of it that way. So, And I've made some, you know, I, I'm happy that I've made probably 75 of my decisions have been good, 25 have been bad. Yeah, can you live with that okay? I have to live with that. But it's better than no decision. Sometimes I will slow a decision down. Are we? Yeah, okay. if it's not life-threatening. You know, people say it's always urgent. Sometimes it's quite, quite a big strategic call. You might slow that down because if it's a 10-year call, six months is not going to make much difference to it. So until you've got a, I've got a frame of reference which gives me more certainty of one way or the other. So did you do the hard yards to learn to be a decision maker? Yeah, a long time ago. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sort of – I'm competitive. I'm an introvert. I'm comfortable in my own space. I've worn – you know, I've sort of – Warned a lot of bad decisions. I've got some bruises, got some scars. You know, I think, and in a sporting analogy, missing the ball the first tee with a crowd of 100 people around you, sort of, you know, bury your head in the sand. It's a sporting analogy where you learn that it's not that important. You can hit the ball off the tee. So there's things, you know, sort of, you, you start to deal with what's material and what's not. So I've learned not to sweat the small stuff okay. and uh, go after the material things and make sure that, that I'm dealing, if I'm in a, a role which has to make material decisions, I'm dealing with material issues and try and frame it. And, and I think you've just got to – you're there, you've been put there, you've been um, – and I once heard Colin Powell, you know, say when he made Joint Chief of Staff of uh, the US Forces, he spoke to his, his predecessor and said, you know, what should I do? And he said, rule number 13, you've been given command, take control. He says, is that it? He said, yeah, no, no, rule number 14. So what's that? So do what is right. And I think if you take those two maxims, you've been put in that role because people believe you've got good judgment and you should be in that role, even though most people who most people doubt that they're good enough to do roles a lot of times. But you're put there because people think you're going to think about it and you'll make the right, more right decisions than wrong decisions. So I think you have to make decisions. And it's judgment and you've got to have a way of making sure that that you're on the on the positive side of right decisions versus wrong decisions, and and the big ones really count. The customer, there's much change out there for the customer. No, I think customers, uh, well, customers change a lot around them, but I think what customers want hasn't changed in thousands of years. Okay, customers, I I think actually want three things, and I'll talk about that. I always thought two things, but the, the two things I, that I really thought about, and this came about to me because when I had a lot of people came up with new products and they kept saying, do you think they'll work or not? And I didn't have a frame of reference to think about this. Mm -hmm. So how do you create a frame of reference? So I spent a lot of time analysing why do customers buy products and they pretty much buy them for a couple of reasons, and there's three, I think, big reasons. The first one is they're looking for convenience. That So if they know what they want to buy, or even if they don't know what they want, they want to be able to do it as, as time efficiently as possible. Increasing today, time is the most precious item. So convenience has become really critical, but it's always been critical. People want to be able to, don't want to waste their time if they want to buy something. Yep. They know what they want. Yep. Get on with it. And now it's 24-7. So what's changed around them? As technology has moved from 
convenience was where you could buy it in your local store where you could walk to, then we could ride to, then when you could get a train to, then we could car to, drive to, and then when you could fly to, and now it's internet delivered to you on, on the, you know, from overseas, the doorstep the next morning. So convenience is critical, but so the need hasn't changed. What's changed is the delivery mechanism. So you have to understand how the delivery mechanism is going to change. So first thing, if there's a new product coming out, if it's not more convenient, it probably won't work in my view. Okay. The second thing is then you're looking at the other side of what people want is also when they're buying something, they want to be a good product. So they want to get value for money. Product, if it's if it's uh, intellectual product, is expertise. So they want expertise. You know, so, I, so let's take a car dealer. You know, in the olden days, people go in and look at a car and prod and test and they ask all the questions of the car dealer, what's it do and blah, blah, blah. Nowadays, you can look at, you can pretty much design a car on the net, you know, and turn up. So you go to see a dealer and say, well, this is a car I want, but there's a couple of questions I also want to answer, you know, more technical questions. But the person can't answer those questions. Why the hell am I here? You know, it's inconvenient. I want the expertise. I've come to you to get the expertise. You don't have it. Why are you selling me a car? I could have done this myself. So what a waste of my time, right? So what technology has also done is driven up the requirement to have deep expertise to be competent in particular areas. And that's why we're seeing... You know, medicine, there's deep expertise. And sometimes we're missing some of the generals, you know. So if you're going to – I know when my father was um, very ill, you know, he's on 16 pills. But he had 16 different specialists working on them and some pills actually worked against each other, so yeah, cancel right. each other out. So you, you do need occasional generals, but it's, it's, it's driven expertise up the curve. So you need to have deep expertise today in a product capability set. And that means you need to understand exactly what customers want and when they're – and you need to have, have that capacity to be close to customers so you can pivot with customer demand and customer desires as, as you move through. Now, some people like, like Jobs, Steve Jobs, could forecast what customers wanted before they knew it. Very rare. Most people work, easy to work with customers, tell you what to do and move quickly ahead of the, ahead of the pack with yeah. something which is a better product. So that's the second thing. What, and then what I learned, I mean, I, being a person, you know, a closet introvert, when I first went to, when I first saw, you know, mobile phones in Hong Kong, which are like bricks against your head. I said, what a waste of who'd want to talk on the phone all day? Well, you know, how wrong was I? So there's a third part of this, which is, you know, people like, you know, communicating with other people. You know, we're a herd, herd animal and yeah. uh, people like reality TV and they like voyeurism and they like, you know, looking at other people and they like seeing, they like talking about things and, you know, so never could I envisage, you know, Snapchat and, and smartphones and all this sort of stuff. And actually the smartphone has taken three industries in one go and destroyed almost the economics of each of those industries. So the internet data usage, they've basically used the benefit of that, the fact that the cost has dropped exponentially. They put a camera on the phone, so destroyed the whole camera companies because they made it more convenient. Yep. Convenient, See, yeah, the convenience, right. Yep. right? They made it actually a phone, you know, <laughs> which is what it was originally going to be. But, you know, all these other things, it's a wallet, it's – so they've they've used a platform which is hugely convenient for the individual and changed the nature of multiple industries because of that. Convenience, deep expertise, and understanding how the community will use things. I think of the three big tests. If it doesn't tick one of those tests, it's probably not going to work in my view. So it helps gives me a frame of reference, and I think I'll probably 85% right in making those decisions. Right. There'll probably be 15 I'll be wrong about because I've missed something else, but it'll pick up most things. So it forces people to think about, you know, when you're building new products and new things, is it more convenient? Is it better? Is it solving, creating expertise to solve a problem which couldn't previously be solved? 
or is it giving you enjoyment in a community sense which you couldn't have never envisaged before? And it's fascinating because technology, we're in an interesting time because technology, it can be incredibly useful in this situation, the moment coronavirus. Yeah. In a method of communication, you've got to find out getting the right communication, yeah. but also people being able to work from home, yeah. people still be able to do the jobs from home and the ability to do that. And, and will probably change the nature of work going forward. Because you think so, yeah? Yeah, do, because people increasingly with technology, it's becoming so intrusive on their life. People are struggling to work out how do I stop 24-7 requirement for me to answer the damn phone. Yeah. And how do we get the work-life balance? Again, find something you're passionate about because then it's seen as more of a balance. It's also very important to turn the things off and for people to work out how to use this technology effectively. But also if you can do work, and what I find if I don't have to come into town, I can work at home because it's all electronic, all my work, then I can do other chores, you know, I can do the washing, I can – you know, clean the house, I can make the lawns, I can do all sorts of things outside that. And my time, I, I, the limited time I have, I can make better use of it. So I don't have to spend an hour commuting in town back. Yeah. I've got that two hours back. Perfect. And I can do something else with that time. And that's why mobile phones are useful in cars where people can talk on phones. And you know, they should only do that if they're good drivers. <laughs> because I actually, I stop talking on the phone because I drive first. And talk on the phone. Whereas some people are in the phone and talk about and talk on the phone, right? Yeah. You've got to say, no, you're driving the car. That's your number one priority. And maybe Tesla or some of these people will you know, create a car where it's it's fully automated. And yep. someone said that'll happen in some city states by 2025. And and quite possible. I'm not negative about the future. I, I think the the increases in in technology, in knowledge, in community interaction has allowed people to understand people. Globally better. I think we have a big risk. We're not taking everyone with us. So the people who haven't had the ability to travel or have the ability to access technology to understand what other people's and we're leaving them behind, we need to really help them because if we don't, you'll end up in a war somewhere, a conflict. So you really have to work with people. And this is a huge opportunity. That's why I think the community needs to really work hard about how do we help people in need now. Yeah, crowdfunding, all sorts of things, which is online. We can do things. You know, there's a massive number of things, different ways we can help people through government, through company aid, through all sorts of things, keeping people in jobs, shift. You know, everyone reducing the pay to help deal with this. It's a massive type issue. So, you travelled a lot. Yeah, what's it done to your way of thinking? Well, that, that was a great thing from rugby because I was very fortunate enough at school to be picked in the Australian schoolboys to tour Japan bounced through Moscow and landed in, in Europe and had uh, four months away and a bunch of guys travelling across Europe. And it was interesting because my father came and watched one of the games. He'd never been outside of Australia and he was 48. I was 18 when I went to London. I took my daughter and she was three. So he said, you know, I was 48, you're 18, the daughter's three going internationally. So it just changed the nature of access to be able to travel today, how much cheaper it is. Yeah. Relative, you know, relatively cheaper to, to what people earn. But well, I was very lucky. I had more than one trip. So the first trip I had, and we spent a lot of time in pubs. We got to know a few of the locals. But people said, you know, what did you see? And didn't see as much as we should have. We realised that. And lucky enough, we got picked again. So and then started with a bunch of guys, you know, getting cars and going to travel and have a look, meet, see what was there, go to museums, meet different people. You know, we were lucky enough to, you know, I, I've, I've had five morning teas with a queen, you know, in Buckingham Palace, you know, with, with rugby teams. And... Uh, as you do, you know, sort of. <laughs> and as you know, a 17, 18 year old, you sort of go, well, that's, you know, laissez fair, that happens the whole time, you know, not really, but anyway. So it's so very lucky, but it teaches you 
the societies are, have different histories, different customs, different ways of thinking, different, different perspectives, different economic requirements. I mean, when I was there in 1981, massive change, uh, this in the UK, Thatcher government, massive change in the coal mines in Wales. It was a complete disaster for yeah. Wales. And the, and the world should be in the same valleys for centuries and they just weren't willing to change. Yep. Uh, so massive change, very tough times. And you, 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 you're a spectator in that environment, watching that and the damage it was doing to communities. And so you learn a lot of that, you know, that, that sort of stuff. And we're touring an island and it was amazing. You know, we're going with, with warfare between the North and the South. The Civil War was, was full swing with IRA. And we toured and rugby in Ireland at the time had an all island rugby team. It was the only thing they did where you had people selected for Northern Ireland. In the Republic of Ireland team, yeah, in right. the same team, so also you know it was part of the four comp- four person competition. So they didn't sing; they didn't sing a national anthem. And we we were in a bus coming from uh, Northern Ireland from Belfast, where we, we stayed outside town. And a lot of troubles going on. And we came on a bus and got to Newry on the border of Northern Ireland. And there was a there was a, a, a military guy lying down, machine gunning down the road as the bus came around the corner. Two people. And we're looking out the windows going, this is, man, look at this, it's unbelievable. You know, it's like, it's, because, you know, if it's an 18 year old sitting here looking like it's in Disneyland or something, this is a show. Yeah. And the bus driver's going, holy do it, I've got a bunch of people here, I've got to yeah, get safe. So we round the next corner and gone. But you're sitting there going, it's reality, you know, and it's an 18 year old, 18 year old guys. My wife used to tell me, you know, men don't, don't form the frontal lobe till 25. That's, you know, so they don't really realize some of the, the impact of these sort of risks, you know, at this time. That's why they're all motor car drivers. And, you know, drive uh, fighter planes and things. But anyway, to me, life taught you a lot about that there are different ways that people live and how lucky we are to live in Australia. Probably the biggest thing I learn every time I come back is how lucky we are to live here. And it really annoys me, people complaining about living in Australia, particularly those who are middle-income Australians because we're in the top echelon of wealth in the world. And, um, you know, we need to really help people in the country. And we need to make Australia more competitive. And I'm not sure you know, we're doing everything we can to help Australians get more competitive and we need to have a greater dialogue to make Australia more competitive. So who should we be talking to? To me, there's two drivers there. I think government needs to, to move from dealing with the consequences of what's going on to deal with an explanation of what is going on to help people who don't understand why work is changing, why work's going overseas, how technology is changing the nature of work, what works like to stay here. What job should I come out of school to get to, to go to university, get a law degree and get no work? Four, four years of debt, no use to me, unless I'm a world expert or, you know, getting really, I'm on the upper echelon of this. Yep. How do we have a conversation with people to understand, you know, what jobs are like to say? Because anything you got built here, you're going you to have to be in this country, you've got to be built locally. Intellectual labor can come from anywhere. Technology can bring it from anywhere. So, yep. you know, how do you get up the curve? What are the things we can do well in this country in a, in a global state? On the flip side, you can create a global business by yourself. When you look at Michael Cannon Brooks and his colleague, you know, built Addison. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they built it, you know, two guys in the garage. Literally, there were. I remember his father. I worked with his father. His father said, I don't know what my son's doing. He's not working at school and, you know, he's got no money garage. And, you know. Anyway, so, you know, so he's Michael Cannon Brooks as well, by the way. So he's sort of, and quite a successful businessman. But, you know, he sort of gave my son's, you know, he's the, he's the real Michael Cannon Brooks. You know, but to me, um, we can also build businesses uh, by yourself now because there's platforms and maybe we should help people be able to have an easy platform to, to trade in other countries, help them build a tax framework, help them do all the delivery frameworks f- from businesses that have originated in good ideas in Australia. So 
I think there's a lot of upside and and so I think there's a government discussion, public policy discussion about how jobs are changing so people understand the nature of the framework of how jobs are changing so they can then work out where I might think about making creating a job. And I think businesses have a big line in that too. And I think a lot of businesses, a lot of investors in public companies don't like CEOs talking much about public policy. Correct, yeah. And so just batting your head down and run the business. And what's, right? your, and what's your view on that as a, well, as my a board view director? Is I, think, you know, all the, I think the piece that they should relax on this. I understand why they're doing that. It's the same focus. But, but a lot of people in their industry are dealing with public policy anyway, even in their industry, and they have to be otherwise. They're not helping the industry, so they've got to be working on that. But I think there should be a conversation with companies about what it, what it takes, what sort of skills they're looking for people, why they're looking for those skills, conversations as to what's going to make, in our, their view, the country more competitive internationally, what are the skill sets we need, what do we need to change in the curriculum, those sort of things. So I do think we need to be more public about conversation. I think that, and I think businesses can be, collectively can be more public, it's hard for individual companies, but the, you know, the Business Council of Australia, the um, uh, ACI and some of the other AIGs, the, the, the various business forums, can help work on collective views of what's going to improve Australian competitiveness in terms of skill sets that we need in Australia and what's going to give people more jobs in Australia. And companies employ people, they create jobs, small business create jobs. So what small business are going to create more jobs? You know, They're going to be internationally competitive. So those sort of things which we need to be the framework of thinking about that so people can sort of get their mind around where their skill set might fit into that. So you go a lot to both China and the US, right? Yeah, and Europe. And Europe. Okay. So what are they what are they thinking? Vastly different organizations, vastly different countries, clearly, politically. And the I haven't been to China. I've been to China not that much more recently because they've they've changed a lot under the new regime. Yeah, exactly. More autocratic, more centrally driven. You know, hugely commercial people. Very good copiers and very good innovators from copying. You know, what I found in China is um, it's all about relationship. You've got to have a good relationship with the people you're dealing with. So you want to know the people you're dealing with. And when there's no longer a benefit for both sides of the relationship, there's no relationship. So so it's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship in all cases. So if they're not getting a benefit, then that's the end of a contract. So so we need to understand that. I mean, but they're big economies. I mean, the you know, and you look in history, you've got the last 2,000 years, China's been a major economy in the world for for 1,800 years out of the 2,000 and they're now second biggest economy in the world. And Borderline right, in some arguments yeah, almost biggest. Marching on. Yeah. And the US is, uh, you know, the US is a very innovative marketplace. Silicon Valley, you know, it's a process where they've got people who've taken the risk of setting up first stage investors and you've got another part of the chain who will take on them as, as starting to generate some revenue. These people, the first people, can they generate revenue? They get them to generating revenue. Then these people take them on at a multiple and buy them at a multiple of revenue. And then they move to real investors who are saying, well, they're making something to make real cash. But they're, they're assessing whether this thing could go global and get a scale at some stage in the future fast enough and they're trying to gear it fast enough to get there. You know, the coronavirus is going to kill a lot of tech companies because they haven't got to be cash positive before that. And yeah, they'll, 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 the valuations will crumble. But they, they had a chain to try and build that, that capability set. And um, I sat next to Warren Buffett for two days in a, in a – uh, in a seminar of chief executives, which um, uh, Microsoft had up in up in Seattle, it was an interesting guy to sit next to. But um, we had dinner one night at, uh, at Bill Gates' place. They had the whole of 150 of us there in his place. Jeff Bezos was there, and I remember Warren saying, "Jeff, Jeff, you know," said, "I really like your company, but you still don't make a cash profit. So I'll start investing in to make a cash profit." So uh, 
And he did after a while, but it wasn't until a few years after that. Yep. Uh, but, you know, Jeff Bezos saw you can do with technology and make a global business and made a massive global platform, you know. And uh, But an interesting and, narrative because his narrative was he was never going to make profit short term. No, we didn't want – no, well, he, because he wanted to reinvest it to build scale. Mm. So he said – he worked out that technology can get the world's market. The world was the market, whereas the, the market was like where you could deliver goods to and when you get technology and intellectual labor is the major driver of, of value in, in a lot of economies, then if you can deliver you can deliver goods right around the world globally and through people that, you know, marketing right around the world, I mean, fantastic, you know. And he was the first person to realize the market had gone global in, in, a, in, a, in a big sense and implement something on scale, which when it really took off, he had something to offer. Yeah, he could put other products on than books just onto his um, on his uh, platform. So, you know, visionaries and had enough luck and gumph and charisma to get through all the capital raises where times were saying, you know, this might never do because I don't know how long it took him to get the cash flow positive, but it was a long time. Yeah. So it took a lot of corralling and cajoling people to get there. So, you know, so it takes, you know, vision, leadership, persistence, and how do you find the Europeans then on that on that trip? Well, no, the Europeans, you know, they're running a different model again. I mean, um, you know, they they found that uh, the benefit of of bringing Europe, greater Europe together in an economic market was hugely beneficial. Drop trade barriers, movement of people, and and has been hugely beneficial. Most beneficial to Germany because their currency was cheaper and they were able to get better returns for their exports. Also very beneficial in terms of the social harmony of Europe, which has been at war with each other for centuries. And and the Germans and the French are very concerned about that. It's a big driver of why keeping the European Union together is is also one to make sure that they don't go back to military conflict. You know, the issue they're troubling with is they've got a centralised government plus local governments. Local governments are parochial. Centralised government is a collection and the alignment between all the people and the centralised government is not great. You know, it's not as strong as it is in the US where you've got the, you've got the federal government, but it's still very state-run a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but there is a union in the US where there is a European Union, but not nearly the same extent there is in the US. So it's, its evolution is way younger than the US Union of States and may never be effective over time but just because the, the historical cultural differences are so deep by those countries and languages still, you know, a lot of languages to overcome. So I think there's, you know, it's, they're different, they're different, they're big, big trees. I think the, the big things, you you know, as a long-term business person, the things you've got to look at is, is obviously population growth because it's going one direction and population growth is driving climate change. And the reason why I say that is because the only real evidence that this is a, not just a cyclical process is they look at, can get ice cores going back millions of years through six ice ages, which show the, show the CO2 levels were in a band for the last six ice ages, and it's now outside the band for yeah, the first right. time on the high side. World's population has only been this scale once historically that we can evidence by a huge margin. I don't think the world's population has been much more than a, a billion people ever historically, and it's now seven and a half and going, still going up. So you've got the technology trend, and the technology trend is changing the nature of work and changing the nature where work is actually done geographically. And the political system is geographic and the market's no longer geographic. And so those people who are missing out in the geography, in the global marketplace, are voting with their feet domestically against 
this change. And that's what's changed, that's what's changed in the politics of the OECD world because the, the wealth differential is widening in the OECD countries, yeah. not necessarily globally, widening in those countries. Yeah. And the politics is drive is going both ways. And no one's, they're all talking about dealing with the consequences of going populist politics as opposed to thinking about how do we make the country as a unit more competitive and therefore increase the wealth of everyone in it and be able to talk to them about so they can find more jobs in that, which jobs might be changing because the nature of work changes through technology. And how do we do that? That's the conversation we should be having, both as companies and as government. So why is you as a board director, are you encouraging your CEOs to speak up? Well, yeah, but I'm not chair of any boards yet, you know, so <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm a, a backbencher. So, you know, it's uh, chief executives are the people that make decisions. But I think it's easy for the chief executives to get the business organisations because they sit on the business organisations to formulate that or the chairs to get together yeah. to make that happen and give them airplay to do that. What do you think the role of the chair is then in that debate? Well, no, I think there is a role across chairs of, you know, well, well-regarded chairs across the country to help in terms of thinking about, you know, building the discussion with companies yep. and with investors to say we should need to be building conversations about how work's changing to now the population of this country to be able to better frame a, a way forward to keep themselves employed and more competitive world. All right. You mentioned you had dinner with Warren Buffett and some others there, yeah. known for the long-term thinking. We have an election period of, what, three years in federal government. Yeah. You talked long-term a couple of times today. Yeah. Uh, are, we, are we struggling in that, in that well, capacity? Well, I think everyone, everyone thinks that's too short. You know, I think that they should be five years, at least four, but I think five is better. But, um, but what, about know, business, what about business philosophy and selling, selling that message? Well, no, they, they've had this long time. You've got to get bipartisan support, uh, you know, support for that. So it's, it's governments can only change governments. So, so I, this has been lobbied for for years. No, no, no. I'm thinking about actually, but you know, the short term mentality from analysts to business as oh, well. Yeah, well, I mean, well, because it sounds good to have that long term thing, but not, a lot of people don't buy it. No, well, they, they don't because we measured some of the performance of investors way too short. And yeah. I know. And then this is again human behavior. So if you've got trustees of people's money and they're looking at the performance of the funds monthly, well, that's a complete waste of time. But they're worried about doing their job properly. Monthly performance of a fund is a complete waste of time because it's a portfolio of businesses and you've got to be looking for businesses and you've got people, times in the marketplace where you've got growth companies and you've got, you've got value companies. So I was, you know, one of the things that I realised when I was running Insurance Australia Group, we're a value company. So we underperformed the index at the peak of the growth market 2005, 6, 7 yep. because all the growth companies, and you, you do not want... A, an insurance company become a growth company because easy to sell product, you just drop yeah. the price. You just leave a big hole in the future of your liabilities. Yeah. So you leave a problem for the next person. You look good for a couple of years and take a lot of money, thank you very much, and the next person's got a complete schmozzle to deal with. And they blame that person rather than you, and they should be blaming you. You're the, so, um, you know, that's why boards have got to be alert to that sort of stuff where you're a board director of an insurance company. But So, you know, I used to say some some customers, you know, you know, you're a growth fund. Get off my share register. I'm going to disappoint you. Yeah, right. Because, you know, I'm a, a value company and I'm not going to change your growth company because it'll destroy the company. So I'm here to provide a stable set of dividends. I should have a low beta. I should be a company which people can rely on over through the cycle to be able to pay an ongoing dividend. And I can pay, make sure I'm there to pay claims. Most important point, I've got to be there to have the, the physical resources and capital there to make claims. So the best way for insurance companies to build capabilities is to have a lot of capital when the market collapses and buy another insurance company yeah. at below market price and also do due diligence on their liabilities so they can price it properly. Perfect. When you're 75 years old, looking back, 
Like you said, no regrets. What could you have done better as a CEO? A lot. I think the um, picking people is always critical. I've done a good job with with a lot of people and I I picked some people, took a punt and sometimes didn't do enough research and then wasn't quick enough to – maybe there's a way you put them in, you take a punt, put them in as a temporary role to see how they go so it's not too too difficult to push them back to where they were if it doesn't work. You know, I think it's all about people. So managing people well. Some of the decisions you make are wrong. Structures of the company, you know, I, I had a very strong product structure and I, I tried, I split it product and customer and that, that worked even better. And then I brought it back to product and I lost the customer side of it for a while. Okay. You know, I think there's uh, structural changes of companies, you know, you need to think through. Other than making them flatter, I have no regrets about that. Best decisions I made, or, you know, flattened chunk of Westpac. I took sort of five layers of management out on the weekend, which, uh, wow. Spare the company up a bit. And that was tough, but, you know, we had to save the company and save jobs. And the boss said once to me, you know, having employees that uh, aren't working essentially puts pressure on other people's jobs. And if a company's not performing, then you put everyone out of business and all jobs could go. So you're better off dealing with people not performing well early. But again, in the same reference, they're not performing well, work out why they're not performing well. And because I don't think people intentionally underperform. I think people are in the wrong job. So find out where the skills are and put them in the right job. But you, having people doing the wrong job, you need to identify them quickly and move them because it creates a real problem for you. Since you're at a level of management where you've got a unique role, you don't shouldn't be doing the work of your executives. So if you pick someone in that job who can't do their work so you're forced to do it, then you're detracting from the overall capability of the company. Yeah. So you've got the wrong person. Yeah. So when you think about putting someone into that, in that role, you've got to think, do they have the capacity to do with the complexity of the role before you put it into it? And that's a very important thing. I don't think people measure enough people's capacity to deal with complexity because each level of management puts up a whole nail another level of complexity. Yeah. And if you're an international business, you got more, you go from domestic to international, it's another level of complexity, different languages, different skill sets. I mean, Macquarie, we've got 209 regulators, you know, to give you some sort of sense of complexity. We have a lot of complexity, so you need people who can deal with complexity. If you're bored who doesn't have enough capacity with complexity of the management or the business, they'll kill the business. Similarly, if you have a board that uh, has too much, and, uh, then they might kill the chief executive. So you've got to, you know, you've got to think about how you balance a lot of different human factors. And was it lonely at the top? Because I'm an introvert, no, I don't think so. Um, no, I, 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 had a, I had a great chairman and I could always uh, have a chat to James about things. I use the board as an asset, so different people on the board who I'd have a chat to and say, you know, what do you think about X, Y, Z, who had plenty of practical experience. I had people in management I could talk to, you know, and say, you know, what do you think about this? Who had different, we had a good management team, a vastly different set of skills, pretty bullshit bunch, but uh, very capable and deep expertise in the area they knew well. And we moulded together and, and an odd job was good. I mean, we had a good bunch of people who, you know, respected each other's different capability set and they brought a different perspective. So we... You know, I, had a, I felt I had a good team I could talk to. So what made you move into the next scene, which is this board director scene? Uh, well, I always wanted to be chief executive and I'd done that job and I'd realised I no longer wanted to be chief executive and I felt well, since I'd done that job. Okay, um, really? So I then said, well, what do I enjoy doing? What gets me out of bed in the morning? I'm really interested in um, finance. I'm very interested in agriculture. I had a farm for a while, come from the, come from the bush. I'm quite interested in Australia. I'm very interested in Australia and its natural resources. Yeah. And it's wildlife. Um, so, and I'm, and I'm just wondering, and I was a school teacher for a year. I like teaching. And I think actually as a leader, you are a teacher to some degree. 
similar skills. You've got to be able to articulate what, you, what you're thinking effectively. And you need to do that more than once because different people take it in differently. So I repeat myself a lot. It help, helps with the Alzheimer's. And um, so, uh, but you know, uh, to me, um, I think there's a point where you sort of, I want to keep busy, I want to keep active, and I want to keep helping. So I look at, you know, for me, I've been very lucky in my life. I've had a great life. I've, you know, lived it fully. And I think that's been very lucky to be able to do that and want to help people. So what is the schedule these days? Pretty busy. So, you know, I've got, uh, you know, I've got boards in, uh, Rugby World Cup boards in, uh, which is a love of mine. I just, I spent six and a half weeks in Japan last week in the Rugby World Cup. Is Japan. the game looking good? Game globally is looking fabulous, actually. Growing very quickly. Just, we're struggling a bit here. Some of it's own doing here and some of it's structural globally. I, I can do a whole new chapter on that, but I won't. Yep. So I'm on that board. I'm on Boopa Global Board, which is a global not-for-profit organization. And I don't really realize it's a big company, though. I mean, it was, uh, it's a Provident Society. And we're in countries which I've never worked in. So we're in, we're the biggest health insurer and hospital owner and an aged care provider in Spain, for instance. And we're big in Poland. We're big in Turkey. We're big in Saudi Arabia, big in Chile. We're big in, in Australia, obviously, big in the UK. So, um, I sit on the board here locally. I'm on the quarry board. We've got, you know, businesses in 28 countries around the world. And I sit on Sol Pattinson, which is an investment company, and we own different companies and we invest in a whole lot of different companies, which is fascinating, uh, one one or two which are international. I spend six months a year travelling overseas. The world's so interconnected. If I'm, I'm a virtual learner. I need to see it to believe it in my triangulation. And so I like when I drop into offices at Macquarie and Booper and, and see what they're like and how they're operating and what their issues are, the grassroots, and um, helps me understand the business and help me understand what we're dealing with. And, and when I was living in London in 2010, the world was about to end in London. Yeah, and you came right. to Australia and China's growing at 7% per annum and the world's fine. So, if you know, if you're not, you don't realise where the world's growing. And the world pretty much has been growing about 3.5% per annum for 40 years and just had one dip in 2008. Sometimes it's not growing at all where you are, but it's growing somewhere else. And But the world's so interconnected, you need to understand that. So high levels of curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to say. I say to my children, I think the world's getting more dangerous because the geopolitical world and the OECD world is actually moving towards uh, more domestic politics, which is more left and right and more protectionism. So I'm saying to my kids, travel a lot and travel now because I think it's going to get harder in your lifetime. Anyway. And you, are you a big reader? Yeah, I read wherever I can, yeah. So... All sorts of things. I'm a history. I'd, my favourite subject was history. So I read, I read a lot of history. So, yeah. so if you're looking back at that youngster and playing footy in the backyard of dad, what advice would you, uh, would you give him now? If it's passionate, keep at it, but also to have another career. Because if you're playing a football sport, you finished at 35, 36, max, maybe 40, really lucky. Yeah, really lucky, yeah. Professionally, then the income stops, like stops, zero, bang. You have, and now you've got what? 50, 60 years left, you need to have another career. All right, Michael, really appreciate your time for joining us today. Great Thank pleasure. you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks very much. Cheers. You've been listening to No Limitations.